90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Burning hot down here in the land without winter or fall. <laughs> uh, we're still uh, moderate up here. We've had a couple freezes, but nothing too bad. Oh, nope. We set all kinds of high, high temperature records here. So. We might get some snow uh, over the weekend, I think. Look, don't gloat, man. Don't gloat. It was 83 yesterday. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's okay. Yeah, I've... so how's the magnetometer doing? Oh, man. I don't want to jinx it, but it looks like it's alive. All right. Yeah, it looks like it's alive. So I don't know what I'm going to complain about on here. I'll find something. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we um... have... Uh, our machine working and I ran some experiments and of course, you know, like a, a good scientist, I'm going to tear it apart again soon Excellent. and do some more work <laughs> uh, because it could As be a always. little better. Yes. And class is closing down. We've got, after the lecture I just gave today, we have two more lectures Oh. and then their project presentations. Feels good, huh? When I pointed that out, it did not feel good for the students. <laughs> Yeah, but you're, you're on the other side now, so it doesn't matter. It's true. I'm on the other side. There's only two more lectures I have to prepare and one's an activity. So Exactly. Yes, I actually went a little bit old school this week and did some on-the-board teaching. You guys uh, so have a actually, board? Well, we have a whiteboard wall. Oh, nice. Nice. I, I prefer chalkboards because you can shade on a chalkboard without the marker colors running together and it just looking like brown. Oh, that is very true. That is so very true. I, so I like chalkboards, but we have whiteboards, and of course, they never have markers that have any ink in them. So I bring yep. my own markers and then end up walking <laughs> around with them in my shirt pocket the rest of the day because I forgot they were there. That's Always wear your pocket protector, though. You don't want to ruin any shirts. <laughs> you know, as we were packing for the move, I found my bag of multi... My, my, my clear pocket protector, my white one, my white one with the clear flap on the front... <laughs> My one with the thing on the front that held your ID, if you had to wear ID. I don't know. I mean, it's not even surprising or worth mentioning, probably. <laughs> no one I mean, is surprised. Pocketprotectors.com, that's all I'm going to say. But. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Whew. So along well, that we, same nerdy note. <laughs> yeah, so we're actually going to, uh, I think, learn a lot about teaching today, being joined by Dr. Greg Wilson. Hi, how are you? Doing fine, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, great. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a Canadian, which uh, <laughs> these days is actually not a bad thing to be. Um, I'm the, also the director of instructor training for the Software Carpentry Foundation. Uh, Brent Gordon and I started Software Carpentry back in 1998. We were both support programmers helping application scientists in domains like physics and geology move their programs over to supercomputers. And over and over again, what we saw was people stumbling because they were trying to run before they could walk. If you've got half a million lines of Fortran and you're trying to parallelize it, but you don't really know what version control is, parallelism isn't your problem here. Similarly, uh, we had an episode several years ago in a workshop that I was teaching that has stuck with me ever since. Uh, It was the morning of the first day and we were teaching people about the Unix shell. And we're about an hour in and we're showing them how to write a loop 
in the shell so that they can process all of their data files one by one. Pretty straightforward thing. And one of the participants in the workshop started to cry. She was in ecology, and she'd been coming in for about an hour every night for a month or six weeks, and sitting in the, the desk chair and rolling around between the eight workstations to type in the commands to run the program on the next data file, oh, no. one file after another. But, and she wasn't crying because she just realized that she could have written a five-line shell script that would have done this over a weekend. She was crying because she had just realized that two of her lab mates knew what loops were and knew full well what she was doing and hadn't bothered to tell her because they thought it was funny. Oh, oh man. And That's awful. It, it is. And we started off teaching basic skills to scientists and engineers, medical researchers, now you know, people in the digital humanities and libraries, because we wanted them to get more done in less time with less pain. And because it was everything we wanted them to know before they came to us for help. We wanted them to have a certain basic level of knowledge and a certain basic level of understanding so that we could start the conversation far enough along that we could actually be useful. But what's become clear over the last few years is that what we're really doing is putting that power back in the hands of the individual researcher. You know, there's so much out there now that you could do if only you knew how. And there's a big difference between something being open and something being accessible. To say that there's a data set out there that could solve your research problem is pointless if you don't have the skills to get it, clean it up, integrate it with what you've got. And if you have to depend on somebody else, some you know, overworked IT person or overworked departmental programmer to come and solve that for you, you're not the one in control of your research any longer. And we want people to have that kind of control so that they can go off and explore what they want to when they want to. And these days, it, it turns out that a handful of basic skills is what people need to get started with that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point because you do see, and especially in you know my field's geology, all the time, people that are doing very manual processes that uh, with a little bit more knowledge of the computing system, they could automate. Um, automation is part of it. Um, sharing is another part. Um, we think of version control in the way that software developers do. It's a way to go back to a previous version. It's a way to see what's changed. And we kind of lose sight of the fact that it's also how you share your work with collaborators. Mailing. I, I had a very unhappy winter one year when I was at the University of Edinburgh where I was a version control system. By 6 p.m. Thursday afternoon, everybody had to mail me the changes they had made to this enormous chunk of Fortran. And by 9 a.m. Monday, I had to mail out the reconciled version. Ooh. Right. <laughs> now, now, you think about that in the late 1980s, and you think about what's possible now if you know how to use Git and GitHub or Mercurial, or Subversion, or even CVS, where we can collaborate at scale with, with much less friction. Not just on the code, but tidying up data sets, uh, writing papers. You know, the last few papers I've worked on have all been Markdown or LaTeX in a GitHub repository. And all of a sudden, people can submit changes, 
and they can review things and they can file issues when they find bugs and it takes minutes instead of hours. And so version control becomes how we collaborate as well as how we keep track of who's done what. And I think this is changing science in ways that we still don't really understand. I will say I think it's kind of slow in some aspects of science because I know that my advisor still, you know, sends out stuff, final version one, final version two, final, final. So, well, it... I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of things on that. The first is I don't blame him or her. Um, the tools that we've got are mostly really user hostile. You know, GitHub is a great hmm. site, but Git is an awful tool from a usability point of view. <laughs> well, we used to teach subversion. And after a half a day on subversion, three quarters of the people in the room could drive it well enough that they would actually adopt it. Um, think about the number of mistakes you can make as a novice with Git that you can't then figure out. You know, you're five minutes into using Git and, you, and you're seeing a message that says you have a detached head. Right. right. <laughs> okay. But, but this is a real barrier to adoption. And I understand why a PI who's got 99 fires to put out and grant deadlines and committees yelling at him would say that it'll make me faster in the long run if I learn this tool, but I don't have a long run. I have a deadline every day. And I think we have to stop blaming the users for not adopting the tools and start putting the blame where it should be, which is on the developers of tools that have such incomprehensible interfaces. Wow. I never thought about that, but I'm on well, board well, for that. <laughs> well, here's here's another example, and people who've heard me before are tired of hearing this one, but <laughs> the tool that's used more than everything else combined to crunch data is Excel. And spreadsheets have been around for 30 years coming up, and yet you cannot put an Excel spreadsheet under version control and have the version control system diff and merge it. Why not? I mean, yes, it's a complicated format, but it's just, it's a tree stored as XML that's been zipped up. And we have lots of tools that can parse that, like LibreOffice. We have lots of tools that could display the diffs. We know how to find the diffs on blobs of XML. So suppose it took three developers a year to build a rough and ready tool for diffing and merging Excel spreadsheets. That's less programmer effort than Google puts into building its doodles every time they release a new doodle. <laughs> and think about how many millions, literally millions of people, would then have an on-ramp instead of a cliff when they want to come to version control. Instead of having to throw away the tools that they're comfortable with, they could keep what they've got and start adopting something else and mix them until they're ready to move on to something else. And, and maybe they never do, right? Right. Uh, maybe they maybe they stick with their spreadsheets because it's working well enough. Maybe they switch to something like R, but at least they're not faced with a, a cliff they have to climb in order to adopt better practices. And I think it is just the, the self-centered snobbery of programmers that prevents them <laughs> from implementing diff and merge on on everybody else's data. And and I've got to say, coming back to you know what, what Shannon said a few minutes ago about her supervisor mailing around final, final underscore one, final underscore two. If I could share spreadsheets through version control with the grant admin officers at universities, right, 
with the folks at NIH and NSF, if we could do right. proposals that way, right there, that justifies any investment, <laughs> like yes. any investment in getting all of these file formats to work under version control. So, so part of what I've learned from software carpentry is that I should apologize more for the state of software. It's it's an interesting way, and you know, you said maybe three programmers for a year. Those those three person years of work are going to be quickly multiplied by a very large number when people start using these tools. As soon as there is something that works, let let's say I'm off by an order of magnitude. Let's say it's thirty programmer years. Right. Right. That is still zero point something 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 percent of the time that is being lost right now, as we all mail around spreadsheets because we've got budgets that we have to reconcile. Right. Right? I mean from a from a from a standpoint of rational economics, this one <laughs> this is low hanging fruit, right? But yeah. it isn't gonna get done because programmers have been trained to sneer at spreadsheets. Yeah, it's definitely true. So I mean you've told us some about software carpentry and kind of what the goals are and had some really good examples. Uh, I guess I'm curious of how it got started. I mean, what <laughs> what was the process of starting that like? So, well, I, I can tell you the moment when I realized that we needed something like this. Um, so I was a support programmer at what became the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Center. And, you know, my job is to take whatever code the scientists have and try to get it running on this first-generation parallel machine in the basement. And the new faculty hire comes in and says, here's my Fortran. Can you make it go a zillion times faster? Okay. 100,000 lines of Fortran in one file. But I'm okay with that. You know, I've gotten used to that. Okay. And when I open the file, I feel this, this sense of relief because at least there are functions. It's not one block of Fortran. Sense right. of relief lasts a lunch hour, which is how long it took me to realize that all of the functions in the bottom of the file were the bits of code he was no longer using. Oh. His simulation was the top half of the file. Every time he wanted to make a major change, he'd carve a chunk out, stick it in the bottom in a function with a meaningful name, because he'd been told that was important, and then not call the function. Okay. So... Okay. That's the point at which I, I started realizing we had work to do, that we had to teach them all of the things that have been around so long and work so well that from a computer science point of view, they'd become boring. See, computer scientists are there to do research on the science of computing. Their job is to push the boundaries. And, and I get that, and I fully accept that that is their job. But that means that something like the Unix shell stopped being interesting from a computer science point of view 30 or 40 years ago. So they don't get points for teaching that or refining that any more than a physicist gets points for, you know, putting a rock on the ground, putting a stick on it, using it as a lever to get your car out of the mud, right? That's not what, a, that's not what physics is. So I complained about this long and loud, and then finally in the mid-90s, uh, John Reinders at the Advanced Computing Lab at Los Alamos uh, said, put up or shut up. And he got a bunch of scientists in a room and gave Brent and I a week to teach them. And from our point of view, it was a disaster. And from the scientist's point of view, it was a godsend because somebody was finally telling them the things they didn't even know to ask about. 
See, that's the, that's the worst part when you're a novice or when you're self-taught, is you've wandered around and you've bumped into a few O'Reilly books or a few web pages, but you don't know where the gaps are in your knowledge. And part of what we're trying to do is give people the whole picture. So I did that for a while, got involved in another startup, uh, did another round in the mid-2000s thanks to a grant from the Python Software Foundation, went off and was a professor for three years and four months, which was three years, three months, and 29 days longer than I should have, and then <laughs> left the university in 2010, uh, got a bit of money from various universities and national labs, thought that I would do it for a year or two, but we were fine, it was finally the right time. People, you know, 90% of success is luck. When somebody, these days when I hear somebody giving advice, what I'm hearing is, here are the lottery numbers that worked for me. Right? And right. we'd been in the right place all those years, but it was finally the right time. There were enough people wanting to do more with open science, to uh, start addressing reproducibility problems. The idea that software is a first-class research artifact was finally in the air. And I guess we... I taught the first workshop using the new material in fall of 2010. I recruited our first instructor, besides myself, in January of 2012. And, you know, it snowballed from there. We started taking people who'd been in workshops, who'd helped out, who seemed keen, and saying, do you want to help teach the next one? Uh, we, we put together an instructor training course. Most of my time these days is on that. And... We take people who've been through the workshop or picked up these skills some other way, give them a two-day crash course in modern evidence-based teaching methods so that they can be more effective in the classroom, and then they turn around and they teach the material. It's all open license, open source. We keep all of our lessons on GitHub, and they're all Creative Commons licensed. And last time I checked, we had 800 instructors in 35 countries, and we taught about 25,000 people. And those numbers keep growing. Um, spring of 2014, uh, there was a meetup at one of the NSF biocenters in the United States, and a group of people led by Tracy Teal, who was then at Michigan State and is now at UC Davis, um, recognized that even though we thought we were teaching basic skills, we were still shooting over the heads of a lot of people. Our goal was to take people who've taught themselves a bit of programming and help them program better, there's a lot of people in grad school, in postdocs, in faculty positions who've never programmed at all. And so data carpentry was set up to help people who think of themselves as doing data analysis rather than software development. Yes, they're writing in R, but they don't think of themselves as programmers. And so data carpentry is teaching people data cleanup and visualization, where we're teaching them version control. Uh, data carpentry workshops are more likely to use R than Python. We still teach most of our lessons in Python. Um, and there's now a third group. Uh, started up last fall, thanks to James Baker, who was then at the British Library and is now at the University of Sussex. And it's called Library Carpentry, because it turns out that research librarians have essentially become the data wranglers. They're the ones who've got the data repository. And they're the ones who have to keep this data usable, shareable, discoverable. And again, nobody's teaching them the skills they need. If they get a programming class as part of their master's in library science, 
it's probably how to build a WordPress website as a sort of a client-facing uh, right. front for the library. And just as data carpentry had to go and rethink curriculum, library carpentry is doing the same thing. When a librarian complains about big data, it's not a petabyte from the Large Hadron Collider. It's 50 different catalogs, each formatted slightly differently, that need to be merged together. It's 50 people who all want to use uh, a set of blueprints of a building in Venice, but they all want to use it in different ways for different purposes. Some of them want to look at you know, uh, Arabic influences on the design of the building. Some of them want to look at how the space has been repurposed to serve different liturgical purposes over the centuries. Other people are looking at um, you know, literary references to this particular church. Has it been mentioned in poetry? Has it been mentioned in biography? So they've got really intense and rich uses of the same data. And that's not something that we'd encountered before. So the uh, particularly since uh, a sprint in May or June of this year, led by Belinda Weaver, who's at the University of Queensland, that material's just taken off, and we, we just can't run workshops fast enough as librarians are picking up skills to, to wrangle this kind of data. And we're also now talking to a group called the Programming Historian, who independently have been developing really, really nice open access lessons at programminghistorian.org, for people in the digital humanities. What does an archaeologist need to know about computing skills? What does somebody whose primary interest is um, records of early English drama, Shakespearean times and the theaters of those times? Their disciplines are being changed by computers and data just as much as physics and astronomy were, but in different ways. And we're going to try to support them however we can they know the discipline, they know its needs. What we think we've developed is a really good way to get hundreds of people to collaborate on construction and delivery of lessons. So it's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but there you go. <laughs> no, I, I think that's perfect. And, you know, you were talking about the, the libraries and all of this data that we've got trying to be able to find it. I remember during the instructor training uh, at the, the Python conference in Austin this summer, you gave some really great examples of here's a document or here's a piece of information. How would you file this? And they weren't necessarily how we <laughs> expected anybody in the room. So I was wondering if you'd mind sharing some of those again. Oh, oh. Um, so that was an example from how you, how you file books by author surname. And you're dealing with um, for example, the fact that Elizabeth Alexandra May Windsor gets filed under E. Right? <laughs> because reigning monarchs like Queen Elizabeth II are alphabetized under the name under which they ruled. Thomas a Becket gets filed under T because he's a saint. Saints are can you know, go under the name they're canonized. Mao Zedong you file under the M because the family name comes first if you're Chinese. And on and on and on. And uh, there's a couple of web pages. I don't have the URLs handy. Uh, one of them is called "Everything Programmers Know About Names Is Wrong." <laughs> right? For for example, um, 
you know, we, we are so used to the notion of a personal name and a family name that we don't realize that in many parts of India, that's just not how names work. You will have a, a name like T.K. Rao. The T was originally the village that the family was from, although now it is just uh, a clade name. R is the father's name, and then Rao is the personal name. So T.K. Rao's son will be T.R. somebody or other. Hmm. So trying to map that into a Western European framework, which is only about four or five hundred years old. The, the, the idea that I am Greg Wilson, that I have a personal name and a patronymic surname, dates back to the 1500s, maybe the 1600s. And, you know, databases created by people who've only seen one model tend not to accommodate the other models at all well. Um, I was recently speaking to somebody here at the University of Toronto. Um, everything programmers know about marriages is wrong as well. The notion that a marriage is between just two people, never, you know, never mind gender, the, the, the idea that a marriage is just two human beings at a time is just plain wrong. But it's wired into a lot of our software, which makes that software difficult for people who are trying to deal with the true richness of human culture really awkward. And you know, this comes up over and over and over again. So it seems like the most fun part of your job, I would think. <laughs> the, I am constantly coming across people through software carpentry who are doing things that I can take home and I can tell to my nine-year-old and her eyes just get really big. <laughs> um, for example, um, we met a woman in uh, Washington State who's using speech recognition software to identify whales. And it works pretty well. Huh. Wow. And it's like, okay, you know, you've got this. What the hell? Try it out. Who knew that this would work? It turns out <laughs> it does, right? I mean, it's not perfect, but it turns out it works well enough that it's better than anything else we've got. Wow. Right? The, the alternative is to try to do it by ear or to not do it at all or to rely on surface observations, which, you know, there's an expensive process, but you can throw a couple of hydrophones out into Puget Sound or at Straits of Georgia, and turns out that you can do a pretty good job of saying, hey, is this Mabel? Right? Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it, it, it is. It is, right? Um, and if we can help people do that a little faster, as I've said more than once, um, the only things that are going to get us through the next 50 years are more science and more courage. You, know, you think about how badly we need to understand climate change and drug-resistant diseases and the interlocking effects of accidental mass extinctions. Um, you, you think about all the engineering we're going to have to do to prevent a, a, a significant collapse with mega-death mortality. And we just can't afford to have scientists spending a week to do something that could be done in a lunch hour. And yeah. I also think that if I, I also think that the more power we put into scientists' hands, the more that they can write their own for loops, the more that they can collaborate with each other through version control, the braver they will be because just like we're smarter together, we tend to be braver together. 
you know, as the recent election has shown, we can also be stupider together. We can also turn vicious. The internet can be used for trolling and for harassment and for the dissemination of falsehood and hatred. But it has the potential to do the opposite. It has the potential to bring us together. And if people get a chance to practice those skills, building software carpentry lessons and organizing software carpentry workshops, and if that then carries over into writing papers collaboratively with people they've never met who stumbled over their work online and have the other piece of the puzzle, these are skills that we're going to need. This is muscle we need to build now because however bad the problems are today, they're only going to be worse 10 years from now. And we're going to have to be smarter and stronger and braver to fix them. Well, and so, you know, we've said that like learning to program or learning to be able to solve these problems is difficult for a multitude of reasons, including the, the tools being somewhat hostile. And you said that in software carpentry, you really focus on uh, teaching these with evidence-based teaching. So we had a question from a listener that kind of ties into that. And he said he would, this is from listener Martin. He said, it would be interested to hear your take on how people are taught to teach, especially at universities. There seems to be no major requirement for this. How huh. far would you like to see things taken in terms of providing academic staff with better skills to actually teach? And he cites that he's had lecturers that really know their stuff, but just made it completely inaccessible. Yep. Um, the first response to that is that as a first-order approximation, most people who teach at universities have never been taught how to teach. They have watched people lecture, and then they're emulating what they've picked up from that, which is rather like saying that I've been on a lot of plane flights and therefore I'm a qualified pilot. <laughs> right? And yeah. we shouldn't be surprised that the crash rates are similar. Now, it's it's not ill will. It just isn't part of the culture. and And I can give you... An, an illustration of this. A lot of universities have teaching tracks as well as research tracks. You can be, get tenure in biology or computer science by focusing on the teaching. So far as we've been able to determine, no department at a major university in North America has ever had a chair who came up through the teaching track. Wow. Now, you think about who you want to run a department. The person you can keep Psych 101 with 1,200 students turning over like a, an Audi engine, or the person who's written 15 brilliant research papers but struggles to get her expense claim filled in at the end of the month. And yet, status in universities is associated almost solely with research output. Teaching is a second-class profession. You take a look at where the money goes. Um, software carpentry has never received government funding. You think about the effect that we're having on science by making people more productive. We have applied in at least four countries for various government grants, and the answer is always, why would we pay for this? Wow. And but, but you see this cropping up everywhere. Talk to anybody in training about what it's like to secure budget for training. Go to a hospital. And the fundraisers will tell you it's easier to get $50 million for a new building than it is to get $500,000 to train the nurses to use the gear we've already got. Because there's nothing for the donor to stand beside if we give the money to the nurses. Right. So 
I'm pessimistic about our ability to improve teaching practices in the short term. And I think that the hollowing out of higher education because of things like MOOCs and teaching moving online is only going to make this worse, not better. Most MOOCs are antiquated teaching practices from the 1950s or 1960s delivered at the speed of the internet. There are a few exceptions, and the Open University in the United Kingdom is perhaps the best of them. They have been a distance learning institution, primarily a distance learning institution, since their foundation in the late 1960s. And they have forgotten more about how to deliver high-quality university-level courses at scale and at distance than edX, Coursera, Udacity, and the Khan Academy together have ever learned. And again, I, I think there's a certain element of snobbery. You know, I've got a, I've got a professorship in machine learning, and I know how to program, and therefore education is easy to solve. And if people are interested, Audrey Waters had a book out recently, which is a history of educational technology. And we see the same myth of school failure and the same promise of technology as a silver bullet coming up every 20 years. It's the technology that changes, but the story around it, the simplification of an intrinsically hard problem, recurs every generation. TV was going to fix education. Now, that was my father's generation, where we wouldn't need teachers because we have television. Well, it didn't play out that way. Right? So, in the short term, I'm pessimistic about our chances of improving teaching practices. In the medium to long term, I'm actually fairly optimistic. I think that a younger generation is willing to listen and willing to try things and I think that we know a lot more than we did 20 or 30 years ago about how learning works and how best to teach. There's a tremendous wealth of research that just wasn't there 20 years ago and things like the Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative at the University of British Columbia have shown that if you put this into practice Life gets better for everybody. So I think we have to be patient in the same way that people who wanted to raise standards in medicine had to be patient. It took at least a generation to get the medical profession to take science seriously. If you look at you know, Semmelweis and Pasteur and, and that generation, Getting doctors to believe that experiments had something to teach them, that was a 40 or 50 year struggle. And then there was another struggle after the Second World War to get doctors to pay attention to statistical tests. Um, one example of that is the 1950 Hill and Dahl study that showed the correlation between smoking and lung cancer. The president of the British Medical Association when presented with this result, said, well, what happens on average is of no interest when one is faced with a particular patient. It wasn't that he was a denialist. It was that his worldview simply didn't include 
anything like this kind of research. He didn't know where to put it. He didn't know what to do with it. Well, I hope that in the long run, software carpentry and data carpentry's biggest impact might well be that we've introduced a generation to not just particular teaching practices, but to the idea that there's something out there to go and learn, that it's possible to do better, that it's possible to go and look at evidence to find out what's better. And yeah, a lot of studies are flaky and a lot of them are hedged around anything involving human subjects is difficult to study. But, you know, public health research is a thing. We can go and take a look at the aggregate effects of elevated lead levels on uh, intellectual development in children. We can take a look at smoking and lung cancer. We can take a look at all of these things. And the experiments are difficult. They're often expensive to run because you need large end and long time periods. But you think about how much more we know today about public health than we did 50 years ago. We know that much more about education. We just haven't deployed a lot of it. So That's, that's for sure. Just have um, to be patient. <laughs> a lot of that really rings true, well, because I am a professor and um, the whole running before you can walk. So with regards to, I feel like that in terms of programming because, you know, I have issues. I just take them to John. <laughs> but <laughs> where do you start? Like, if you know, I've got this problem. There's all this stuff out here. It's very daunting. Yeah. Um, okay. How much time do you have? <laughs> no, no, but that's meant as a serious question. I have two right. answers, uh -huh. and it depends how much time you have. Um, longer than the time period of a grad student, or, you know. Okay. Okay, if you've got a few hours, you start with a book by Lang called Small Teaching. Lang teaches at a liberal, uh, liberal arts college in the Northeast. And he starts the book by saying, I've read all of this stuff, I've seen all of this stuff, but I don't have a budget and I don't have a lot of time. What are the small things that I can do right now that are evidence-based that will have an effect on my teaching? Right? Okay. So it may not be the things that are going to be most impactful. It is the things that are within reach. And anybody who's worked in you know, public health, particularly done field work, will instantly understand this approach. Let's do what is going to have a payoff that you can do right now. Washing hands, boiling the water, right? It doesn't solve every problem, but you're going to see the payoff. If you've got more time and more budget, um, there's a book by Ambrose et al. called How Learning Works. Published in 2010, it is a seven-chapter summary of pretty much everything we knew six years ago. It's the Learning Sciences Group at Carnegie Mellon is the team that put it together. And it's a beautiful example of secondary literature. You know, here's five pages on uh, the effects of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation on learning in children. Here's what we know, here's why we believe it, and here's the pointers back to the primary literature if you want to dig deeper. It's exactly the book you want when you're wandering into a new field and trying to orient yourself. It, it's not an exciting read. Um, but it's comprehensive. I'd, I'd love it if that team would do an update because you know, the field has moved on. But mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's still really solid, and it gives you a sense of what we know and what we don't know. Right? And it's descriptive rather than prescriptive. Where Lang is saying, here are the things you should do now, uh, the How Learning Works book is saying, here's what we know, so that you'll understand the recommendation, so that you'll be able to evaluate the latest bandwagon that rolls through. 
Um, you know, as, as an example, um, there's there's this notion that there are different learning styles: visual, auditory, kinesthetic. You know, some people learn in different ways. There is absolutely no basis, no evidential basis, for believing that it has any impact on teaching or on learning. Even the guy who came up with this theory in the 1980s has since said, yeah, turns out it was plausible, it just doesn't happen in the real world. But this <laughs> keeps cropping up in school boards because there are dozens of companies that build and market learning materials to target these different learning styles, even though the learning styles don't exist. It's it's the homeopathy of education. Right? And having a chance to look at the evidence allows you, both as a professor and as, you know, as a parent with kids, which is where I am also today, to be able to look at a recommendation and say, you know what? That's just not true. Right? And hmm, yeah. I'm, I'm finding that helpful. You know, it, it's nice to be able to look at the latest debate and say, well, actually. So those are the two that I those are the two that I would start with. And of the two I would start with Langs. A third book I would recommend if people are looking for context is Elizabeth Green's book, Building a Better Teacher. And this was one that really helped me orient myself. Green started off by trying to figure out why so many attempts at educational reform in the United States over the last 50 years have had so little effect on learning outcomes. And what she discovered was that a generation ago, we discovered why, we discovered what teachers have to do in order to improve outcomes, but we didn't adopt it. The practice was adopted in other countries like Japan. And in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, teachers from those countries started coming back to the United States to you know, see this at its source, and were surprised and then horrified to discover that most of us had never heard of this stuff. And yes, there is a very close analogy with what happened with manufacturing, where people like Deming in the 1950s said, there's a better way to build a car. Detroit said, la, 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 I can't hear you. But <laughs> Honda and Toyota said, Tell me more. Well, we all know how the 1980s played out for the car industry, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and it turns out that standardized testing by itself doesn't improve outcomes any more than weighing yourself more often is going to help you lose weight. If you don't tell the individual teacher what he or she needs to do to improve their own practice, you've told them they're not doing well, but they don't know what to change. And having teachers go and observe each other teach and discuss lessons as a group turns out to be the key practice. I'm going to come and I'm going to watch John teach. And it's not that he's doing a demonstration lesson, and I'm not there to evaluate him. I'm like a musician who wanders into somebody else's session to listen and say, oh, wait a second, that's pretty cool. I'm going to try that. And there's some nice work from Sally Fincher's group at the University of Kent. What teachers take away from watching each other teach is usually not what the person teaching meant to demonstrate. 
And you've all run into right. this, where yeah. I come to you for help with stats, and I come away knowing some keyboard shortcuts in our studio. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. That, that this accidental knowledge transfer turns out, out to be the key because it's what Shannon is ready for that's going to fit into her practice. And I right. can't predict that. So we just have to create lots of opportunities for lateral knowledge transfer. Mm-hmm. And the problem is it doesn't work if you don't build time into the schedule and if it's not a social expectation to do it. If right. it's the extra, if I have to cut something else to do it, I'm not going to do it. So in, right. you know, in Japan, in Finland, in a lot of other countries, it's just an expectation that you're going to go and spend time in other people's classroom. In the same way that these days, athletes are just expected to watch games that have been recorded. You know, if you're a hockey right. player and you're serious about your hockey, you're watching the NHL games, and you're not just rooting for your team. You're trying to figure out what are they doing here. How can I pick that up? Like, which of these practices do I want to put on the ice on Thursday? That isn't part of the teaching culture, and it needs to mm-hmm. be. Yeah, not well, at all. No, and one of the things that you do after instructors teach uh, a workshop, there's this debriefing session where everybody gets together on this conference call. And you know, after I completed the instructor training, we participated in those. And then we also did a uh, sample teaching with other instructor candidates and at you and learned a ton from that. That was one of my favorite things was just talking to the other instructors and saying, what didn't work at your last workshop or what did people just go, aha, it was great. And and this is something that's, I, I wish we could send email back in time. Right? Um, we only started doing these debriefing sessions a year and a half ago. And it actually came out of the community. It wasn't organized by uh, the executive in software carpentry and data carpentry. It was members of the community who said, you know what, we'd like to get together to compare nodes. And everybody else said, yes, like, like, let's start now. And so every week we run two sessions at different times because we've got to accommodate different time zones where people who've taught recently and people who are about to teach can just hang out for an hour and say, all right, are there any new install problems with Git on macOS? Um, or last time I taught this lesson, this exercise just didn't work for me. What have other people seen? Did I just introduce it badly, or is it genuinely a badly written exercise? And if so, how can we tweak it? Um, all, all sorts of little teaching practices get transferred this way, and I wish we were doing a better job of taking what's discussed in those sessions and writing it down. But on the other hand, I think at least half of the value is the discussion, not the outcome. Right. Um, it's, it's made a tremendous difference to the quality of our workshops. And the people on the mentoring committee who put those sessions together and run them are, are having a, a real impact. So on the teaching side, I think we've talked a lot about like what the software carpentry looks like. But like as a learner, like I saw an ad for software carpentry workshop at our university. What do you expect going in, into that? Um, I expect you to bring a laptop and an open mind. I'm <laughs> grateful if you've installed the software beforehand like we ask you to, but I'm no longer, <laughs> I, I, you know, my, my, brother, my brother says that happiness comes from having high hopes but low expectations. <laughs> right? so, um, so we will spend two days uh, nine to four with a lunch break and a couple of coffee breaks, two consecutive days is a typical setup for a workshop. 
It's all live coding. There are no slides. The instructor plugs in and starts showing you how to do things, and you type along. And every 15 minutes or so, we use uh, some sort of formative assessment exercise. Here, try this. Both for you to practice the skill and reinforce what you've learned, but also to give us feedback. Are we all keeping up? You know, was the knowledge transferred? If half the class can't do the exercise, it means we have to go back and, and teach it again. And it means that we we get through variable amounts of material in from one workshop to the next, but we're always moving at the pace of our learners. And you know, one of the analogies we make is that a PowerPoint slide deck is, is like train tracks. Here's where you are, here's where you're going. You can't deviate because you know what's on the next slide. Live coding is more like four-wheel drive. If somebody asks an interesting question or has an interesting problem, you can follow them. And it's, I, I think it's really motivating for our learners that we follow them instead of them following us. If something comes up and people want to dive into it, then we can go where they need to be because every room is going to be different. Um, right. everybody's background is going to be different, everybody's interests are going to be different, and yeah, we've got key points that we want to hit, um, but it's like doing a walking tour of old Montreal. You know, there are the landmarks you want to get to, but that doesn't mean you have to take the same route every time with every group. It, that seems like old school teaching, you know, going back to take it where it goes as opposed to PowerPoints. I love that. <laughs> well, and, and there's other practices that we use. We, we often have people pair up. In industry, it's called pair programming. Um, pair learning is a really effective teaching practice because you've got somebody to share your ideas with, you're more likely to ask for help. And if there's a mismatch in skill levels, the stronger of the pair will still learn a lot from answering the other person's questions because it drives them out of their comfort zone, gets them to see things from a new way or to rethink stuff that they've been doing by rote that they may never have really understood. Uh, another one of our core teaching practices is the use of sticky notes. And you know, pe people think I have a bit of an obsession, but uh, it turns out that sticky notes are probably the most valuable teaching tool ever invented. Uh, you come to one of our workshops and we'll give you, everybody gets one red and one green, right? Or one, one blue and one green. When things are going well, you put up the green sticky note. You know, you want somebody to come and check the end of an exercise, you're keeping up the green sticky note. So if that's your status indicator. When you've got a question, when you need help, when something's wrong, you put up the red sticky note, people are more likely to put a little red sticky note up on their laptop than they are to sit there with their arm in the air. And they can keep typing. And from the front of the room, you can just look and say, whoops, I've got a sea of red sticky notes. Right? I, something right. has gone wrong I need to fix. You're getting those status indicators. We've experimented with using up to four sticky notes. And if people, you know, if people want to go full-on sticky note here, <laughs> um, you give people a blue sticky note as well. Blue means break. Blue means my brain is full. It means bathroom. Right? Hmm. Okay. And it's yeah. just all right. When, when you need it, you put up the blue sticky note. What you'll see is nothing happens, nothing happens. And then somebody sort of look around and say, oh, put up the blue sticky note. And then it's like, bang, 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 a whole wave of blue <laughs> sticky notes, right? Because every lesson is too short from the teacher's point of view and too long from the learners. <laughs> yeah. You're up yeah. there, you've got the adrenaline flowing, you're the last one to realize that it's time we went out for some oxygen. <laughs> right? um, an another technique, you know, if you want the fourth sticky note, 
give people a yellow sticky note, they put their name on, it goes up. Every time you interact with that learner, every time they ask a question or you call on them, they take the sticky note down. So what you're seeing is, who haven't I spoken to yet? So that you're distributing the attention fairly through the room. It's very natural for an instructor to focus on the few people that are outgoing, making eye contact, that want attention, that have the answers. And you've, you've seen lectures that basically turned into a, a one-to-one discussion between the professor and the keener in the second row. Right. Having a visibly fair mechanism to allocate attention around the room helps the instructor and the learners. Right? And, yeah. yeah, you know, you can tell people if you really don't want to be called on, just take down your own sticky note. But we find that mostly doesn't happen. Once people realize that attention is being distributed fairly and they're not being picked on, they're more likely to engage. And it's little practices like this turn out to make a really big difference. Um, another one that we use, whenever we're teaching, we'll fire up Etherpad or open a Google Doc so that all of the learners are taking notes collaboratively. Here's our shared notes from this lesson. Man, is that a beautiful thing. Because the people who are going to check out and go to Facebook or Twitter, because they're you know, they already know most of this. It gives them something to do. It gives them a way to contribute back to the class. Right. It gives everybody a chance to see what the other people in the room think was just said. You know, if, if John has weaker English or a hearing problem or is struggling to keep up, he can, you know, Shannon might be the one taking the notes. So John is getting the notes without being distracted. And if he didn't really understand what was just said, he can glance at the Google Doc or the Etherpad and see what Shannon thought was just said and check his understanding. Um, it also produces better notes because instead yeah. of me guessing in advance what notes you want, you as the learners are going to write down what you actually didn't know before I started talking. And again, it's that difference between train tracks and off-road. Right. <coughs> you know, Every classroom these days has Wi-Fi. might be lousy Wi-Fi, but it's got Wi-Fi. And there hasn't been a lot of research yet on collaborative note-taking. We've known for years that taking notes while you learn improves learning outcomes because it holds things in short-term memory, <coughs> Excuse me, because it gives you a chance to reflect. There's one study from earlier this year that seemed to show that collaborative note-taking improved things again, but it was small-scale study, it's early work, but you know, it, it's clear to us that there's some benefit. We might not understand exactly why, and we're not quite sure what the right scale is. I wouldn't have 600 students using one Google Doc, right? not just for technical reasons, but because most of them are going to be freeloaders, but having 100 groups of six, there's an interesting experiment to try out. And this is the sort of place where educational research can actually do something innovative with the technology, something that's more than just recorded video and robo-grading. Um, right. One of my big complaints about MOOCs is that they're a broadcast model of teaching. If you watch teenagers playing video games, they've all got a headset on like the one I'm wearing. They're all 
talking to each other. The game is an excuse for collaboration. It's a social event. We could be doing that with online learning. We're mostly not. And again, I hope that if we introduce a large number of people to evidence-based teaching practices and then wait 10 years, as they come up through the ranks and they become more influential within academia, as they become professors, they will be able to do what we could and should be doing today, but either don't know to or don't have the capacity to. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting, too, during the workshops and even the instructor training, you know, during a break or at the end of the day, we would take the red and green sticky notes and give feedback to you as the instructors on what's going well for us, what's not going well for us. So it's really this two-way interaction, not just student-to-student interaction. Absolutely. Um, that's a practice we got from Tracy Teal, uh, and, and it goes back a long way. It's called minute cards. Take one minute before you leave the room. Right? Give me one question that wasn't answered, you know, one thing that you're still confused about, but also give me one thing that you're, you're taking away from the last three hours. It takes ten minutes to sort those into piles, to group them, and right away you know what you need to say when the class comes back after the break. What did they get wrong, or what did you skip over because it's obvious to you but not obvious to them? All of that improves the teaching, but the real payoff is that as soon as your learners see you responding to their needs, it improves their motivation. It improves their engagement. They are no longer passive recipients. They now have the chance to influence what's going on. Um, One of the pivotal moments, I guess, in my educational history was a linear algebra class when I was an undergraduate. We're all sitting there and the professor comes in, and this is back in the days of foil transparencies, and he, you know, we're expecting first lecture, first day. They go through the syllabus and they tell you the grading scheme and blah, 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 and that's what he does. Professor Pollock put up a transparency and it was a multiple choice question. He said, okay, A, B, C, or D. And we all felt like, what the hell? That's not fair. (laughs) We're supposed to just sit here and like write down the syllabus. He's, come on, A, B, C, or D. And it was actually a pretty simple question. I can't remember what the answer was, but no, like B. And he goes, great, I can skip the first 20 minutes of this lecture. He puts up the next multiple choice question, A, B, C, or D. Most of us got it. He said, great, I can skip the next 20 minutes. It wasn't until about the fourth multiple choice question that enough of us were getting it wrong that he said, this is where I have to start lecturing. We loved that man because we've all had the experience of sitting there while somebody drones on telling us something that we all know. And here he is giving us a feedback loop and acting on it, right? So that he's not wasting our time and and he's giving himself more time to focus on the stuff that's genuinely hard. I think, I think that a few simple changes like that would fix a lot of what is wrong with education. And I hope that the people we're teaching will be in a position to implement some of these when the time comes. I'd also like a unicorn for Christmas, so, you know. <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, I think what you all are doing is just amazing. And the, the couple of days that I spent during the instructor training was phenomenally helpful. And I know some of my colleagues that went through it with me as well really felt the same we are just getting started now 25,000 so, learners over six years 
seems like a lot when I look back to April of 2010, but that is some tiny fraction of 1% of all the people doing research on this planet. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it took a decade for statistics to become kind of normal in undergraduate life science teaching. Right. And it took a decade and a half to get to the point where they could even start trying to make it normal. Yeah. So if you use that as the analogy, we're now five years into a 15 or 20 year process. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Patience well, is a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you have a deadline. You have to yep. run off here in a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you a question that we really have enjoyed asking a lot of our guests, which are, and especially what tools, software or otherwise, are necessary for your everyday life, for you managing your life and your work, and how has technology influenced your daily routine? And, you know, we've heard both sides of that, so. Um, I, I wish I was still a programmer. I miss the simplicity of multi-threaded C++ garbage collection compared to figuring out how to navigate the expense claim system at Harvard University. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite serious. I have figured out why Harvard has a, whatever it is, $29 billion endowment, because in financial terms, it's a singularity. Like Money cannot reach escape velocity at Harvard. Um, uh, setting that aside, no, I, I live and breathe email these days. Okay. Right? Mostly, mostly what I'm doing is communicating with people. Um, second to email would be GitHub, because all of our lessons are stored there, and a lot of our asynchronous interaction is mediated through version control. And that is a barrier to entry for a lot of people, and it's something I want to revisit at some point. But, you know, if, we're, if you're trying to build a position paper or a lesson or something like that, version control allows you to do near real-time peer feedback. As compared to the weeks or months, it can take the traditional publication system to tell you that reviewer number three really doesn't like your paper because you didn't <laughs> cite something that they wrote. Um, so... Yeah, those are the two tools that I use most these days. I'd, I'd like to go back and learn some new programming so that I can see programming with fresh eyes. If I ever get the chance, um, I would like to go back and learn a pure functional language, not because I think they're the future. They've been the future for 40 years, and 40 years from now they will probably still be the future. <laughs> but um, it would force me to rethink what I know about programming, and I think that would do me a lot of good right now. Um, the other thing I'd like to do, uh, you asked me before the interview started about favorite papers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Andrea Stefik and his group have been doing some fascinating work on the usability of programming languages. A programming language is an interface, and it can be studied using the same techniques we use to study the usability of a web browser, the usability of you know, the, the dashboard automation systems in your car. And one of the things his group has found is that you can actually do this. You can do double-blind controlled studies that will give you useful information about the comparative usability of different programming languages. And one of their results is that the languages in the C family, uh, things like Perl and Java, are as difficult for novices to learn as a language with a randomly designed syntax. 
Yes, that was an interesting result in this paper. Yes. Yep. Now, <laughs> languages like Python and Ruby are significantly more usable, and I, I use that word in its strict sense. They are statistically significantly more usable, and there's enough of a gap there that it's worth paying attention to. The language that he and his team are building, called Quorum, they A-B test every feature before it goes in. They do not add a feature until they've done the usability testing to show that it is the best of the alternatives that they've got in front of them. And that language turns out to be more usable again than Python or Ruby. And I bring this up because the programming languages community's reaction to these papers has mostly been to ignore them. Because if, you know, if Stefik is right, then oops, we've been wrong about all of this shouting we've been doing about syntax. And you know, there is a new scientific programming language called Julia that's been getting a lot of attention over the last couple of years. It might be better, but I feel that as scientists, we have an obligation to go and show that it's better before we invest in it. We can go and study its usability. If it is not easier for novices to learn than the languages we have today, then I think it is a mistake for us to invest effort in it. I equally think it was a mistake for us to invest a lot of effort in building Python 3, which is a non-backward compatible descendant of Python 2, without doing these kinds of usability studies. We have enough people in the community people in universities, that when we want to make changes to languages or want to add new features, we could bloody well go off and say, is this going to be learnable? Let's compare some of the alternatives. We don't have to do it for everything. We don't have to do it all of the time. But I think it is hypocritical of us to complain when the general public ignores the evidence about climate change or ignores all of the evidence that says that vaccines don't bloody well cause autism. And then turn around right. and say, but when it's our stuff, we get to just shout at each other, have a few beer, and then whoever's still standing gets to win. Right. right. So that's the paper I would like people to look at as proof of what can be done. And then go off and get more funding for it and start doing more of it. We'll have it linked in the show notes. It was really interesting to look at some of the tables and see what syntax mm -hmm. non-programmers said. This makes a lot more sense. Some of it, like repeat instead of for a while, make sense. Some of it was really surprising. And and that's what science is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to let us check the things that we think are obvious, which turn out to be anything but. If I'm allowed a second paper, um, <laughs> uh, there's one by Jackson and President Suarez, and I'll send you the link. They did a paper three years ago where they compared the mental models that people have of Git with how Git actually works. <laughs> Oh boy. And what That's they found, well, it is. And it's exactly the kind of thing that we need to be doing from a design point of view. Every time there's a difference between how you think Git works and how it actually works, there are going to be mistakes. Right. The machine doesn't work the way I think it works. My mental model predicts the wrong thing. Of course, I'm going to botch. I can blame me, I can blame the tool. It's easy to say, well, learn how it works properly. But a lot of the, I mean, their sample population is undergraduates in computer science at MIT, right? If they can't figure this out, 
then I'm willing to blame the tool. Um, <laughs> yeah. They have another paper out more recently where they do a much more detailed critique, much more structured critique of the places where Git doesn't satisfy its own design criteria. And I don't want to sound like I'm picking on Git. There's lots of other pieces of software. I mean, there are lots of other pieces of software um, that are just as bad from a usability point of view and present exactly the same exclusionary barriers. Right. This is the one that I trip over most these days. And hmm. I think this is the one that I would most want to fix because I think, well, actually that's no longer true. The one that I would most want to fix is around encryption. There's a paper okay. from the 1990s called Why Johnny Can't Encrypt, showing that the user interfaces to all the things we have for digitally signing email and for encrypting our email traffic are, are, are just absolutely horrible to use. And that's why you don't use them. Right. Well, Greg, it's been a lot of uh, a lot of fun talking to you and yeah, sure learned a lot as always. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Okay. Um, and thank you all for having me. Well, Shannon, I don't know about you, but I have a lot to think about when it comes to teaching now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, exactly. I thought this was going to be all above my head, software talk. And, well, a couple of the words were foreign. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a really some really great insight into teaching anything and i that was a great conversation i think yes and i think at some point we'll have to pin greg down again i know he's a, a busy person yes. and i really <laughs> appreciate him doing this with us yes it was but wonderful we have been getting some discussion going you heard we had a listener question that was actually asked through the slack chat room and i've seen awesome. a few more people getting in there so don't forget to send us your questions audio comments emails we love getting it all. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Um, send us those show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And like John just said, come hang out in our Slack chat room, um, swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.